0: I serve as the president of an organization called R3. R3 stands for Redeeming, Rational, and Radical. It is a nonprofit organization uh, that seeks to create opportunities for young people to be mobilized into meaningful service. There is a lot of opportunities, there's a lot of young people, but connecting those two is why this organization exists. We recognize that there's a lot of inspiration, there's a lot of training, but there's not a lot of service. Service is what is actually going to finish the work. That's actually what's going to hasten the coming of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go home. And so as a result, um, this is why R3 was created. This is why it continues to exist. Um, R3 is a very young organization. You probably haven't heard of it because we have not advertised it very heavily. And the reason for that is we are in the process of building things. And also recognize that you cannot ask young people to do what you yourself are not doing. And so as a result, as most of our board members, we are actively doing the very thing that we're trying to encourage young people to do. And so we've been building and building for the past year and a half, almost two years. Uh, We have four departments. We have a media department. Our media director is there in the back with the camera. the good-looking fellow from London. And um, his name's Clive. Uh, We also have my wife, Candice. She oversees the music department. I wish she was here. She could have blessed you with a song. Um, But she felt it best to stay home because we're going to be heading to Dubai, uh, to the Middle East, for a a two-month project there on Monday or so. Um, Also, we have uh, Laszlo. He is from Hungary. He's actually overseeing our technology department, web development applications on mobile phones and things like this that we can utilize, obviously, uh, for God's work. And also, um, we have the missions departments, Um, and this is run by Callie. Callie is already there in the Middle East right now, getting everything set up for the mission to start on October 15th. Um, Alongside the co-founder, her name is Katie, um, as well as uh, Clive's wife, her name is Charlene, and she's the one that oversees our special projects, uh, which I can't tell you about because they're special. And so you have to wait until we finish the projects and we introduce them to you. But God has been good to us at R3, we have no complaints, as since we started this organization. We've seen God's hand open doors and continue to create opportunities to do what he's called us to do. Um, Some of you may also know that I used to serve as a general vice president for GYC, Generation Youth Christ. It's a North American division conference uh, that is organized annually. Um, it started in 2002 with just 200 uh, people, young people organized and said let's invite our friends and invite our favorite preachers. Since that time, it is now aired on 3ABN. Uh, since 2004, it has grown to over six, 7,000 annually. We've also established a conference in Europe, uh, GYC Europe, which happened in Linz, Austria earlier this year. Uh, if you want more information, go to YouTube, online, GYCweb.org. Um, and so that was also an organization that I served in for many, many years and continue to partner with them as well, as God creates opportunities for that. But the reality is, is that there is a huge need, there is a vacuum in our church, and that vacuum is there are no young people. This church was started by youth, it has been perpetuated by youth, and continues to be beheld in by the fact of where are the youth is really the pulse of the church. The proof in the pudding is not in what are the older people doing? Are they able to teach Sabbath school? The real test is, what can our young people do? This shows whether the knowledge and the experience that older individuals in the church have that has been passed down. Have they been trained? Have they been taught? And so as a result, R three exists simply for this purpose, is not to create an organization, not to create an institution, but to create a movement. To, ins- to kind of in- create the inception of a collective state of mind. That we could actually be that generation that sees Jesus come in our lifetime. Too many individuals don't believe that. And we recognize that if we do what the previous generation has done, we will be here another generation. And therefore, if we want something we've never obtained before, we have to do something we've never done before. And that means to take decisions and steps of faith that our parents and our forefathers did not take. And that is exactly what we represent. And so as a result, if anyone has gifts or interests or desires to give their talents and all that they are and all that they have into God's work, we're more than happy to talk to you, to support you and to encourage you and to partner with you so that we can finish this work and we can go home and we can see what England looks like as God intended it to look like. Can you say amen? It's beautiful, but it's not as beautiful as what God intended. So let's pray together as we start our sermon for this morning. Heavenly Father, we are nothing before you. And yet you've given everything to redeem us. All of heaven in one gift. What wondrous love is this? Lord, we pray that as you have poured out your love upon us, in the person of Jesus that as we gather here about your feet that you would take this man who is but dust in your sight that you would speak through him and you'll speak to him we pray father that Jesus may be seen that your word may be exalted and that we may leave this place with more ardent desire to seek God to know him to love him and to serve him this is our prayer and we trust that you will help this to be our experience. For we offer this prayer from our hearts, in Christ's name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The title of our message is The Greatest Spiritual Gift. The Greatest Spiritual Gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when you're there, if you could say amen. amen. If you're not there, just say have mercy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Uh, we began last night, I was at Northampton Church, and we've started a series of messages entitled, Life with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a topic that is all essential and yet not often discussed. And so as a result, for this weekend, I've decided for my theme and subjects of meditation to talk about the Holy Spirit in very pointed and specific and personal ways. So we began in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we saw that the Bible says in verse 4 that there are diversities of gifts, but it is the same spirit. In other words, although there is a diversity of the abilities and the talents within the church in Corinth, Paul says they are all given by the same spirit. They are all equal manifestations of the third person of the Godhead. And that this concept of exalting certain gifts in certain positions over others is not biblical. To think that because someone is the pastor or the preacher, that they have more of the Holy Spirit than you is incorrect. It is inappropriate theology. It is unbiblical, it is unfounded. It came out of your own conceptions and opinions. Paul says, whether you're the preacher or the lady who's cutting a pineapple for potluck, or the brother who's collecting the offering, or the elder that's visiting the members, or the pastor that's going to the hospital to visit the sick and the shut-in, it is all a manifestation of the same Spirit. There is no difference. And because of this, he's addressing the issue in Corinth that they would think the gift of tongues is the greatest manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That if you do not speak in tongues, you do not have the Holy Spirit. I hope that sounds familiar to many of us because it is still a concept, and idea that is perpetrated today through the movement of the charismatic movement and the Pentecostal church as a denomination, which has now affected over 40 other denominations. Because of this concept that certain gifts manifest the spirit and others do not, Paul says that is not true. Speaking by authority of God He says there are diversities of gifts, but it is the same spirit. And because it is the same spirit, it requires just as much of the Holy Spirit to preach a sermon as it does to teach Sabbath school. But too many of us look at certain gifts and say, if I'm not this gift, then there's no point in me serving. If I'm not in this role, there's no point in me serving because my talent is not this person's talent. And Paul begins to address this. Look down with me in verse 8. Paul says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Then Paul says, To another the word of knowledge through the what? The same Spirit. And to another faith by the same Spirit. Are you getting the repetition? Paul says whether it's wisdom, whether it's faith, whether it's words words of affirmation, support, tongues, It is all through the same spirit. He was given the gift by the same person of the Godhead. And so as a result, he ends in verse 11 by saying, but one and the same spirit works all these things. So when the brother gets up and he's teaching a powerful Sabbath school lesson, it is the spirit working these things. When you find a sister praying for you and it moves your heart to trust Jesus, it is the spirit working these things. It's not just the spirit behind the pulpit. It is not just the spirit that inspires us. It is the spirit behind every ministry of the church. And the reason why the church suffers and dies is because we have focused only on some gifts and neglected others. And just to go to Paul's point in verse 12, Paul says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by how many spirits? By one spirit, what happened? We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Verse 14, for in fact, the body is not one member, but what? Many. Isn't that true? So when you look at the human body, Paul says the human body teaches us an object lesson of how the church is to function. Paul looks at the church and he says, the body is one body, but it is made up of many members. And each of those members have a role. They have a place. They have a contribution to make to the proper function of the body to do what it was created and designed to do. Because God made the human body, he does not waste one cell. He did not waste one molecule. He did not add one electron that was not necessary to the function of Adam. Everything in man was designed for a very specific purpose in mind. And Paul says, if this is true of the physical body, it is also true of the spiritual body of Christ. And so he makes the point In verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am an eye, I am not of of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? So in other words, Paul is saying, well, you know, when the foot doesn't say, well, I'm not the hand, therefore I'm not from the body. I'm not really a part of the church because I'm not on the board. Because I'm not the individual who's collecting the offering. Because I'm not the person that's up there doing the intercessory prayer, therefore I'm not of the body. I'm not a part of this local congregation because I'm not serving in these specific areas. And Paul says, now if the whole body were an eye, where was the hearing? Can you imagine if the human body was one big eyeball? No eyelids, no eyebrows, no nothing. The body won't last because there's no stomach. It's just an eyeball. It won't be able to breathe because it has no lungs. It's just an eyeball. And this ridiculous absurdity that we are discussing is exactly the mindset that has entrenched itself in the church. That we look and say, it's just the pastor as if that's the whole church. Mm -hmm. No, no, not the pastor, the elders as if that's the whole church. And if the whole body was elders, then who's going to teach Sabbath school? If everybody's a preacher, then who's going to sit in a congregation and listen to the sermon? If everybody's going to sit up there and say, I'm going to collect offering and clean the church, who is actually going to teach the children? Because we decided in our minds, these are the gifts that make up the body. Therefore, if I don't do this, I'm not of the body. Paul says that is not true. And I used this illustration last night. How ridiculous would it be if the moon said, I'm not the sun, therefore I won't shine. If the small little lake says, I'm not the mighty Thames, therefore I won't flow. Because I'm not the ocean, I'm not a body of water. Because as a blade of grass, I'm not a rose, therefore I'm not a plant. Everything has its role in nature. Everything has its role in the universe. Why is it that when we come to the church, that cannot be true? We don't want to take this role, we want to take that role, or no role, but that doesn't work. You know what happens when people are born with extra fingers? They cut it off. Are you following? This is excess. We don't need this. What happens when you find cancer? You remove it. When you have a cyst on your ovaries, you remove it. That's not supposed to be there. It serves no function, nor purpose to the body. So if we come to church and we say, well, I'm not this, I'm not this. Well, if you're excess, then why are we here? Because on a physical body, you wouldn't let extra skin just grow. You cut it off. But we expect to come to the church and just be extra skin. Excessive growth. One more finger we didn't need. And it wasn't designed to have. So we're trying to create departments for activities God never intended. Well, I'm going to be in charge of the gardening ministry. There is no gardening ministry. There is no gardening department. But I'm not saying someone shouldn't be out there saying we should beautify the grounds of God's house. We should be planting flowers. We should be planting these things. But the problem comes up is the fact that we take this and say, I don't want to serve where the church needs. Do you know that when your body is injured? The rest of the parts of your body send reinforcements to heal this part of your body. The heart doesn't say, or the hand, it says, well, you cut the left hand. Well, that's your own fault. Just bleed. We're not going to send anything to seal this wound up. But this is the mindset we bring into the church. We say, well, that's your department. Oh, well, I'm sorry it's failing. I can't help you. I'm too busy with cradle roll." I'm not an adult Sabbath school teacher. I'm a children's Sabbath school teacher. No, we move according to the needs of the body. But he goes on to say in verse 18, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as who pleased. Who pleased? He pleased. That's a capital H. That's God. So when we look down and say, how did I get the gifts that I have? Verse 11 told you the spirit decided which one you received. Then you say, what's my role in church? God is the one that set you so. But we don't want to accept that. And it is far too long. The church has been crippled and disabled and handicapped by the very fact that people get it into their mind. We have superstar preachers, superstar pastors superstar elders, this is what it's all about. And you're thinking to yourself, that is not how the church goes forward. We don't move forward because we have powerful elders. When you read the book of Acts, Stephen was a deacon. You don't know deacons that can preach like that today. Philip was a deacon, 3,000 baptized in Samaria, filled with the Holy Spirit through the deacon. He wasn't saying, well, I'm supposed to oversee the, 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 the distribution to the Grecian widows. I don't have time for evangelism. No, Philip was saying, we oversaw this business. Make sure the Grecian widows get their appropriate food. And he went out to preach. Because he understood. As a deacon, Paul didn't say, choose a man who's over six feet tall, who can lift heavy things. To be a deacon. No, 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 no. Paul says, choose seven men among you, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how you choose the deacon. But that's not how we choose. We don't say, well, I'm not going to step up. And it's even more incumbent upon us, the more spiritual we are, the longer that we've been in the faith. We should be the ones leaving the example, but we are not. Oh, I'm just going to take a back seat. I just like the support. I like to encourage. Let the other people step in. No, we need to take responsibility. We are past the time. Can you imagine I look at my wife and I say to myself, well, I'm stronger than you. I've been in the Marine Corps. I'm physically developed. I hit the weights all the time. But you know, babe, I'm gonna sit and take a back seat. You lift this luggage. I'll support you. I wanna see you develop. No, that is not how it works. The way it works is because I'm stronger, I lift the bags. Because I'm stronger. Has nothing to do with my wife's inability. Has everything to do with this is my responsibility. And it has to be done. But when we come to God's house, that's not the mindset. There is no person in this room who will respect a leader that does not step up to their position. Say, how is this guy the president of the company? How is this guy the CEO? How is this guy the prime minister? He's not even stepping up. He's afraid to make a speech. How did this guy get elected? That's what we'd be telling ourselves. But that's how we criticize the government. But when we come in here, how is it this person is not stepping up, doing what's supposed to be done? Because the reality is we criticize other people for the very things we do. And it's unfortunate that with all the problems in the secular government, it still run better and more efficiently than God's house. You think all those people in parliament want to go to those hours and hours of discussions and debates? Oh, yes, I enjoy this. No, they don't. Why do they do it? Because that's what I signed up for. When I accepted the position to be a part of parliament, it comes with the territory. What happens when we decided to give our lives to Jesus through baptism? It comes with the territory. That's what we signed up for. Paul says, God set us the way he pleased. Not the way we please, not what we think is going to bring us rapport or some sort of reputation or prestige. God says, I gave you this gift so that you can serve the way that I choose for you to serve. Therefore, it is not an issue of, will you accept the nominating committee's suggestion? It's, is God calling you to serve him? I'm not serving the church, I'm serving Christ. But too often times, we fall into this mistake. Focusing always on the human element, forgetting the divine. I learned this lesson in my marriage. Because people will sit down and say, well, I don't know if I want to serve the church. I don't know if I want to get, I have a lot of things going on. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, when I look at my wife, and we've had our disagreements, as every married couple does. And you say, well, this is how this is supposed to go. You're learning communication. And we came to a point where we said, listen, we just need to be simple about this. If I look in things and say, well... My wife didn't iron my clothes, so therefore, I'm not going to go carry her bags outside. She can carry them. She says, well, he left his pants all over the place, so I'll just let them there. It won't wash them. They'll be dirty when it's time for him to preach again. Well, you, next time, you'll pick it up and put it in the dirty clothes. Then I said, well, since you didn't wash my stuff, then I'm not taking you out to eat this week. No date night. Forget that. No special time. I'm too busy washing my clothes. This is how the cycle comes. So then I looked at, we looked at each other and we said, listen, this ain't going to work. We will never last in this approach. So the decision we had to make was we don't do things based upon what the other person does. So I don't sit and say to myself, I'm going to take my wife out to eat because she picked up my clothes and washed them and et cetera, et cetera. No, I do it for Christ's sake. I love because he first loved me has nothing to do with whether you love me or not. So the reality is, when you come and you say, man, I don't want to do this, I don't feel the need for this, I'm I'm mad at the fact that she didn't or she did, no, 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 that's a non-mute point. You do it for Christ's sake. Why am I doing it? Because Jesus did this for me. Therefore, what happened to our marriage? Completely transformed. So now all of a sudden, greater appreciation, greater unity, greater commitment, greater efficiency... Because no one's sitting in the house saying to themselves, well, I'm just responding to what you did. And I'm just arguing with the fact of what you said. No, what I'm doing is I'm saying I'm doing this because of Jesus. She's doing it because of Jesus. Therefore, it gets done with a joyful spirit because we're doing it for him who gave all for us. And then people say, wow, well run home. Has nothing to do with because my wife is amazing. Because my husband is amazing. No, it's because Jesus is amazing. That's what moves. So why is it any different in the church? A house divided against itself cannot stand. Cannot, will not. Whether it be a family, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a church. Whether it be a nation, whether it be an organization. Whether it be a movement. Whether it be a society. It doesn't matter what it is. If it is divided, it will not last. It will not, it will destroy itself. Because you are constantly in a state of civil war. But when everyone decides, you know what? For Christ's sake. I'm not here to serve the Wellingboro Church, I'm here to serve Jesus. A friend told me one time, said, Sebastian, you travel so much, you get so many opportunities to speak and invitations, why do you even speak at local churches anymore? You should just do big events. And I'm looking at this person, I said, why would I do that? Well, listen, man, you get to a certain level where you don't need to speak at local churches. That's too small for you. Why would you do all that research and Bible study and all these things to speak to 30 people when you could be speaking to 3,000? I said, you think I signed up to preach because of numbers? I didn't sign up for numbers. I was told, I called you to preach, you preach where I tell you to preach. I said if Philip followed that model, he would have never gone and met the Ethiopian eunuch. And the gospel would have never gone to Africa. Lord, go to the desert. What are you talking about? I baptized 3,000. I don't go to the desert. There's nobody in the desert. No. Philip goes where Jesus tells him to go. And because he does what Jesus tells him to do, then you see the miracle of God. And because of a deacon... Are you hearing me? Because of a deacon, the gospel went to Africa. Who obeyed the voice of the Holy Spirit? If there's anyone that should respect the concept of a deacon, it is the continent of Africa. Because if the man did not obey the spirit of God and was concerned with numbers and was concerned with what's prestigious, it would never have gone to this continent. So as a result, we can sit down this morning, And can look at the situations of our lives, the situations of our families, the situations of our churches, and we can sit and face up to the music and say, I have a decision to make. And that decision is, what am I going to do with the gifts that God has given to me? What is Jesus calling me to do, and I'm here to serve Jesus? I don't care what the church does. When I was a local church elder, that was my mantra. Oh, man, I can't believe they're having another church board meeting man, these meetings are forever. People are arguing. People are unChrist-like. I'm like, all of what you're saying is true, but I didn't sign up to serve them. I signed up to serve Christ. Amen. And therefore, I will go to the board meeting, and every time they do become unChrist-like, I will tell them at the board meeting. And I will tell them, this is what the Bible says. And I will tell them, this is what God expects of us. And the church board can do what it wants to do. But my job as an elder is to guide the church. Now, whether you want to obey, that's your own business. But I've done what I was supposed to do. And I will visit the members and I will pray with them and I will give them Bible studies and I will study with their kids. And I will tell them baby dedication is not baby dedication. It's parent dedication. This child does not raise itself. So don't come weeping to my altar talking about my son is lost. You raised him. So this baby dedication is about you coming to Jesus. You giving your life to God and to raise your children to fear God by your example first. Your words come second. I know how many kids leave the church because their parents weep at the altar. And then go home and curse each other out. Cursing people in the car on the motorway because they cut them off. And all your kid is thinking, you're a Christian. Oh yeah, this is what it means to serve Jesus I don't see the power of the gospel transforming your life, mom. So with all those difficulties that stand before us as a church, why would anyone want to serve? Except the person who was asking them. Because Jesus asked. Ask you a very simple question this morning before I move on. Because I'm totally off my notes right now. This is not what I was intending to preach. But the question you have to ask yourself is, what is it that you would not do for Jesus? I've asked congregations before, would you sleep on dirt for two weeks for Jesus? Yes or no? Would you do it? They said, Jesus called you in a dream and said, I want you to go to this place to sleep on dirt for two weeks for me. Would you do it? Would you go to a village right in the center of Iraq, five miles from where ISIS is, for Jesus? What if Jesus said, send your children to this mission field? Would you do it for Jesus? See, we don't understand the stuff that we believe or that we preach. Because I read in the book, Steps to Christ, people think it hard to give all to Jesus when he has given all for them. She says, I'm ashamed to think it, I'm ashamed to write it. Because we don't understand the cross, because we don't understand what Jesus gave and laid down for us, we lay down nothing for him. Mm -hmm. Jesus gave us the whole meal, we give him the crumbs. Mm -hmm. He gives us all of heaven, we give him the leftover 10 minutes of my day for devotion. He says, here's my robe of righteousness, which will save your eternal soul. Yeah, Lord, I'll give you my little rags to church. Save my good clothes for the club and for my wedding. It's the mindset. So no surprise that Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Oh, yeah, no, I won't do that for Jesus. It is a wonder that we could actually stand before God and worship with so much pride. Before him who humbled himself and became a slave and say, no, I will not do this for you. In the face of self-sacrificing love, it's unfathomable. And I wonder sometimes when I've gone to Asia, I said, you know what I think it is? In the Western world, we don't understand the concept of a king. We don't have the concept. We have prime ministers, presidents, CEOs. Oh yeah, he's there because he helps run the organization well. That's how we talk about leadership. But back in the day, there were kings. And when you go to Asia and you see these places that are still monarchies, you recognize the fact when they said the king is coming, a year in advance, they start cleaning the city. A year in advance, and then they mark, this is the path that the king will travel, and they put rose petals along the whole street. Do you know how many roses that is? By hand. Because the king should never walk on pavement. He's the king. Then they are there four hours before the king even left his palace. In line, ready to meet him. And they have specially made clothing specifically for this event. And you bow before the king gets in front of you. As soon as someone says, the king is over there, you bow. There's no question. And you don't look at the king in his eye. You don't speak to the king unless the king speaks to you. And his word is law. Who is this person? Why is she dressed like this? Remove her. No one's gonna argue. I feel like the king is unjust. He's the king. And if she tries to peep up, her own family will quiet her down. Are you crazy? You'll get us all killed because of your pride. Shut your mouth and do what the king says. I'm like, they're like, Sebastian, This is what it means to have a king. So when we talk about Jesus, and we like to sing it, ride on, King Jesus, ride on. No man shall not hinder you. (laughs) But we don't understand what we're talking about. We don't treat Jesus as a king. We treat him as, you know, our nice little cousin that's our favorite cousin that helps us out when we're in trouble. That's how we treat Jesus. But not as a king And when the the king calls and says, I need you to serve me in this capacity, you don't say to the king, you know, your majesty, this is not really a good fit for me. (laughs) You don't do. There is no discussion. The fact that the king asks you is because he's being gracious. He could have commended you. But he decided, I'm going to ask you because that's the kind of person I am. And when he asks and calls and says, I would like you to serve me in my palace in this way. People would say to themselves, no, 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 no. I I think you have the wrong person. I think this is not really my thing. But thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. I'll go back to my regularly scheduled program. To a king. You wouldn't. But because we don't understand that concept of a king, of lord, of master. Slaves don't argue with masters. But this is how we look at Christ. And Paul says this is a problem. This is a problem. That people are not taking their roles in the body of Christ because they're not this one. Or if I'm not serving in these roles, I'm not serving at all. The Lord help us. I don't want to go too much longer. Paul says in verse 27 to speed towards what I want to address in specificity. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? There's a certain way of writing in the Greek language Where the answer is assumed to be no. And these are examples of that. When Paul says, are all apostles, what is the answer? No. You think the Corinthian church doesn't know that? Are all apostles? They're thinking Paul is an apostle. Peter is an apostle. For sure, all of us are not apostles. Okay, are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. No. Are all workers of miracles? No. So as Paul is dealing with this, he first starts off with the concept of identity. Are you a prophet? Are you an apostle? Are you a teacher? By identity. Then he goes into ability. And he says, do all speak with tongues? What's the answer? No. So the very idea that the gift of tongues is the gift that is the true manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and therefore every member of the church must possess it, is nonsensical because all do not speak with tongues, just as all are not prophets, just as all are not apostles, and all do not interpret. But Paul adds in verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the what? The best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. I like this because when Paul gives this phrase, I show you a more excellent way. It is the Greek, it comes from the Greek word huperbole. Can you say that word? It comes, it's similar to the English word hyperbole. This is where we get the word from because a U in Greek looks like a Y. But in English we say hyperbole. In Greek they say huperbole. So now, the, the word bole comes from two words in Greek. It's a compound word. Hooper means to go over. Bole means to throw something, to go beyond. So now, as Paul is saying, here are all the gifts that you're looking at. And he's saying, you should covet earnestly the best gifts. But yet, I'm going to show you an even more excellent way. All these other gifts, imagine there's a wall. He says, these gifts go a certain distance, but there is something that goes beyond. You see, the word hyperbole means to exaggerate. And my family is of Caribbean heritage. And Caribbean people love to exaggerate. (laughs) Everything we do is exaggeration. So I tell people all the time, if a brother does something one time, he does it all the time. And we have all these different sayings in the Caribbean. So it's like, man, this person's always in your business. Okay, he asked one question. But now, this is his whole character. If you don't come dressed properly, why are you dressed like a bum? (laughs) Because he doesn't have a tie on? It's a little extreme. Don't you think you're exaggerating? No, man. No, we're not exaggerating. So the concept of exaggeration is to take something to its extreme to make a point very clear. That is the idea of an exaggeration. It's a device of writing. So when we talk about exaggeration, we use certain key words to do exaggeration. For example, right, if a young lady was there and a guy came up and said, hey, excuse me, sister, I've been watching you for a long time. I've been coming Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, and I really feel like God is leading, you know, leading us to be together. (laughs) Some sisters are like, yeah, some brothers have tried that. It didn't work out. Not at the Wellingborough Seventh-day Adventist Church at least. But then she looks at him and she says, even if you were the last man on earth and I needed to marry you to have children to perpetuate the human race, I would not marry you. Now, here's the point. She's not saying you are the last man, right? Because clearly you're not. And she's not saying that marrying you is a question of will we perpetuate the human species? That's not the issue, but she's using an exaggeration to say if it were the case, I so don't want to be with you that if the human race depended upon me deciding to be with you, I wouldn't be with you. That's what my wife said to me at first. (laughs) But she recognized the fact That in this mindset, Paul says, I am about to exaggerate right now. I'm about to show you something that is clearly an exaggeration. So notice with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So I hope you begin to notice the exaggeration. There are over 6,500 human languages. Paul says, if I spoke with all the tongues of men and of angels, he's not saying there are angelic languages. He's saying, even if there were angelic languages. And I spoke with the tongues of men, and I was researching. I said, who is the person who has the world record for the most languages that they can speak? And there was this guy, I think his name is Zaid Fahad. Supposedly, This guy can speak 59 languages, supposedly. Now, I read some conflicting reports. Some people said they tested him in South America. They were like, hey, speak this language. And he was confusing Croatian with Russian with some, like, Gaelic language. And they're like, no, 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 you're not speaking the right languages. But other people said he's been at UN meetings and all these different things, and he's proven that he can discuss policy and economics and science in 59 languages. Now, if you think about that, If you could speak with all the tongues of men and of angels, right? Let's say you spoke 6,500 languages. You could preach the gospel in any country. There's no person on the streets of England or any nation on the earth you could not speak of the wonderful works of God. Language is no longer a barrier for you. And Paul says, if you spoke with all the tongues of men and you don't have love you are become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, this this idea of sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, the idea comes from the fact that in Corinth, there was huge amounts of paganism. And a part of their rituals for these pagans was to bang this metal over and over and over repeatedly. So if you're walking in Corinth, you could hear it all the time. 100% of the time, every single day, all day long. And obviously, you can imagine this would get very annoying, right? You just hear it clanging metal all day long. King, 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 king. It's just constantly, constantly throughout the city. But this is what the priests would do to work themselves up into a frenzy in order to have a spiritual encounter. And Paul is saying, if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and you don't have love, you're empty sound to the degree that it becomes a nuisance to you. I can't even listen to the sound anymore. It's just noise. Because what is the purpose of the gift of tongues? God didn't give tongues just so people can walk around and say, oh, I can speak Spanish and French and this and that and the third. Oh, yeah, let me say this in Croatian. I'll finish the sentence in Spanish and I'll start the next sentence in Latvian. Why? Just to show that you can. Paul says, what is the worth of the gift of tongues if you have no message? When they received the gift of tongues, it was so that they could speak of the wonderful works of God. And Paul says, here's an exaggeration. You could have the gift of tongues to its ultimate capacity. The full manifestation of the gift. And yet, even if you have this gift, love goes far beyond. In fact, love is what gives the gift of tongues meaning. That gives it any value. So my first point is the fact that love is what gives value. But I'm going to explain this a little bit further. Look at verse 2. He says, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand how many mysteries? All mysteries. And I have how much knowledge? And though I have how much faith? So that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. I want you to follow this very closely. Paul says... If I had the gift of prophets, that means you can tell the future. And I understood how many mysteries? All. That means there is nothing that is hidden to me. And I had how much knowledge? All knowledge. Now, this is interesting that Paul says, if you have all knowledge, you understand all mysteries, and you know the future, and you have all faith, that you can literally do anything, and you don't have love, he doesn't say you can do nothing, He says, you are nothing. Your value is nothing. All knowledge plus understanding all mysteries plus prophecy plus all faith minus love is zero. But who is the being in the universe that has all knowledge? Who? Only God does. Who understands all mysteries? God. So follow Paul's thinking. If you had and I had God's knowledge and we had God's understanding and we had God's ability to tell the future and we don't have his love, we are nothing. Paul is commenting on the divine itself. You and I don't understand what it means that God is God. And what makes God God, what makes him God is not that he knows all things. It is not that he understands all things. It is his love because the value of a thing is in measurement to the amount of love that it contains. The only currency the universe understands is love. All these talents and gifts, and you and I will pull and kill and push ourselves to publish in scholarly journals to make sure that we're getting that next promotion, that we're going forward in our organization, in our career. And God says, if you have all of that and you don't have love, you are nothing. You're not even a little bit. You're not even an iota. You're not an ounce. You're not a gram. You are nothing because you don't have love. And the amazing thing is who wouldn't want the gift of prophecy? Who wouldn't want to understand all mysteries? Who wouldn't want all knowledge? Lucifer, when you recognize that he wanted to be like God, you immediately realize he didn't really want to be like God. He wanted his knowledge. He wanted his understanding. He wanted his power, but he doesn't want his love. Because Lucifer did not understand what made Christ, Christ. He thinks the thing that made Jesus above him was because of his knowledge. Jesus was in the innermost councils of the Most High. Lucifer, you missed it. You think it's because of his abilities? You think it's because of his gifts? You're wrong. What makes him God is that God is not knowledge. God is not power. God is not ability. God is not wisdom. God is love. Amen. Yeah. And because God is love, there is no value away from God. There is no value away from love. So, in this sense, how then do you and I measure our value? We judge our value and our worth based on what we can do, based on what we have done, based on the positions we hold, based on the affirmation and the accolades of other people. And we say, now I have value. Now I have worth, and Paul says, no you don't. The question is, do you have love? How much love? Love is the greatest manifestation of the spirit. Without love, we have no value. I have to speedily move to my conclusion. the time is against us. We talked about the value of love. I want to go to my second point, which is the visual or the visibility of love. The Bible says in verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul looks at love and he says, love is visible. Love manifests itself in actions. There is a behavior to love. There are certain things love will do and there are certain things love won't do. And it continues to baffle me to this day that when the apostle Paul is writing about such a profound truth of love. The first thing out of his mouth is not kindness. It's not thinks no evil. It's not that it doesn't rejoice in iniquity or that it rejoices in the truth or that it bears all things. The first thing out of his mouth is love suffers long. If you're going to love, you're going to suffer. And you're not going to suffer short. You're going to suffer long. Anyone who's ever loved a child knows what I'm talking about. If you choose love and we choose love, we choose the path of pain. Because love suffers long. It is patient. Love is used to dealing with long periods of time. Love affects the way we understand minutes and years and millennia. And people say, why can God wait a thousand years? Why can he wait 6,000? Because of love. Why could Jacob wait seven years for Rachel? Because of love. It was as if a few days to him because of love. Because love completely shifts and contorts your whole concept of time. This is nothing. God says 6,000 years. And we understand why Paul writes, in sec- or Peter writes, we account the long suffering of God as salvation. Because God is not willing that any should perish. But God is long-suffering. God is long-suffering. When he goes to Moses on the mountain to declare the glory of the Lord, and he says he's abundant in goodness and in truth, he's long-suffering. If you really want to understand love, you have to understand patience. So when young people come and they talk about relationships, I say, if he can't wait, if you can't wait, it's not love. It's infatuation. That's Amnon. Can't wait. And Tamar looked at her half-brother and she said, if you just wait and go to the king, he will give me to you. He could have had Tamar for the rest of his life. You know what he looked at her and he said? No. I want it now. And he raped his half-sister. Even though the Bible says he loved her so much that he was sick, he didn't love her. That's not love because love suffers long. You can wait when it's love. But you have young people, they can't wait. We got to get married now. We have to date now. We have to do this. What's the rush? I waited almost two years before I dated my wife. Dated. And she knew I was interested. What's the rush? Why go into something you're not ready? That's why Song of Songs says do not awaken love before it is time. But you got people 13, 14 years old talking about they love each other. You don't understand love. You waited like two weeks. Oh, usually I ask the girl on the first day, but I waited like a month. That's how you know that I'm really interested in her. Foolishness. 14 years old, you don't understand the concept of weight. (laughs) Oh, I'm interested in this girl, I'm interested in that girl. If you really want to understand love, you must understand patience. And usually when I talk to people, particularly young people about this issue of patience, they come and they say, I want your advice. I say, no, you don't. They say, no, I really want your advice, I want your input. What do you think about, you know, possibility of a relationship? I said, if you're not willing to hear no, then we have no point in talking. If you think I'm going to rubber stamp your relationship, oh yeah, boom, approve, yeah, that's fine. You counsel with Brother Elder Sebastian, no. I'm not signing my name off on anything that I have not approved by the Bible. But that's what we want. So when people are interested in love, they just go to the people that are going to tell them, yes, 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 this is great. You guys are a beautiful couple. You look good together. They're not going to go to the people that are like, you're taking this a little fast. You might want to slow it down. Have you really thought about this? What about your ex-boyfriend? You were just telling me you still have feelings for him. How are you moving to a new relationship? And I can go on and on and on. Because it all comes down to what Paul says. Love suffers long. Love is visual. You can see it. And the first way that love manifests itself is patience. If there's any way that you and I know that God loves us, it's because he's patient. You cannot understand love without patience. When a mother looks at you, I remember when I took my dad's car. My dad said, yeah, you can drive my car. And I was driving back, bumping some rap music loud, speeding on the highway. I was doing over 100 miles an hour. Zooming in an SUV, Toyota 4Runner. Windows down, bumping this music. All over the highway. Oh, that's my exit. Whipped the car. Car went on its side. I hit the railing on one side, bounced to the other railing on the other side, bounced back to the other railing on the other side. The car got back on its wheels and started rolling. It was clearly something was wrong because the car was going like this. As I was going down the highway, I pulled off the road thinking, I'm going to die. My dad's going to murder me. Cold blood. Let me just get the chalk so they can outline my body. (laughs) This is where he was killed. So, you know, I didn't even call my dad. I wouldn't even get out the car to see the damage. I'm like, man, my life is over. That's all I was thinking. My life is over. And as I'm, as I'm, as I'm getting out of the car and I finally check this thing, and then I'm like, man, I'm in the middle of two highways crossing, so there is no gas station. There's nothing nearby. So I'm dressed up, dress shoes and everything, walking through grass this high in the morning, so it's all covered in dew. It's all wet. I walk miles to get to this gas station, find a hotel, which, by the way, this was 4 in the morning. So nothing's open. So I had to wait outside this Marriott Hotel till they opened. Go inside, call my dad. He's like, all right, yeah, I'll come and get you, whatever, we'll have it towed. Get the car towed, brings the car, I drive the car home, whatever. And all I'm thinking is, when we get home, (laughs) it's D-Day, I can just see the sun setting. Just start singing the hymn, were you there? (laughs) It's like, I'm gonna die. We get to the driveway, I get out the car, go inside the house. My dad says nothing to me. Nothing, not one thing. Not a hand on the shoulder, not a son we need to talk, nothing. I couldn't take it anymore, right? You're just plagued by guilt in your mind. Maybe he's setting me up. He's waiting for when I'm like having a happy day, you know, and then it's like bam! Just take me out, blackout. So I went to my dad and I said, said, Daddy, you know, I'm really sorry about the car, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And my dad looked at me. He said, as long as you're all right, that's what matters. And he said, if you want to thank me, do something with your life. That's all he said. And when I got into college and eventually when I became a Christian and I was reflecting on these experiences and I'm thinking to myself, you know, my siblings will be, I don't even know if Daddy loves me, all these different things. You know how kids are. You argue about your parents and you have different perspectives on them, especially if you weren't raised in a Christian home. But I thought to myself, how can I say my dad does not love me when I think of the patience? Patience. And when you and I look at our lives and how many times we've persisted in sin, how many times we've rebelled against his grace, how many times we've despised his goodness, He will bless us. We will thank him. We will praise, give a testimony in church and go back to our regularly sinful lives. And yet the Lord is still patient and will wait a long time for us. And then when we come, he doesn't even bring up the past. It's as if a new life. How can we question whether God loves us and we see his patience. God could have shut this church down a long time ago. Long time ago. And if we do not sit and reflect as a local church in Wellingboro and say, have we not received the patience of God? To say that God doesn't love this church is a lie because he's been patient with it But we cannot continue forever despising his goodness. And so love is visible. It will always manifest itself in acts of love and of kindness. It will avoid gossip and so on. I have to go to my final point. It says in verse eight, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But let me pause here. Paul, when he says love never fails, we like to quote this in weddings, but it's not saying what we think it's saying. Love never fails. Their love will last forever, for better, for worse. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul, when he uses this word never fails, what he's saying is, Love will always be useful. There will never come a day where the gift of love is useless. But prophecy, there will come a day where it will be useless. Tongues, there will come a day where it is useless. Because I always think about the fact that when you go to heaven, and as we're walking into the pearly gates, I tell people it's like the airport. When you go to security line, there's certain things you can't bring on the plane, right? So you put your luggage on the belt. You walk through the line and what happens when you walk through and you got metal in your pocket? Beep, 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 sir, come back, check your pockets, check your shoes, take this off. Sister, is anything in your hair? They're all taking stuff out your hair, doing this and that and the third. We want to make sure you, because you cannot bring any metal sharp objects. You cannot bring liquids above this many ounces. You got to leave that here. But this is my hair gel. I don't care what it is. It's going to stay right here. At the airport, and we're going to throw it in the trash. And I tell people, when it comes to spiritual gifts, when you and I get to the pearly gates, you can't walk in with the gift of prophecy. It's going to be, beep back out. You can't bring that in here. We got no use for prophecy. We got no use for tongues. We got no use for this. Why not? What do you mean, why not? We can talk to him directly. Why do we need you to prophesy? He, the gift of prophecy is from him. So as a result, Paul says, but there's one thing, when you get to the conveyor belt and you go through the line, it will always go through. That's love. Amen. Even when we get to heaven and throughout eternity, love will be useful. Amen. And Paul goes on to argue that love is a sign of maturity because he says, we know in part And we prophesy in part. It is an incomplete thing. But in verse 10, he says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. He says, all these things are little partial pieces of it. But the full picture is love. He says, in fact, you should have learned this from childhood. Because when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away Childish things. Paul says, when you and I get to heaven, we're going to look at the gift of tongues. Childish things. You put that stuff away. He says, this thing is for immaturity. Down here on this earth, as we're growing back into the image of God, that's children play things. But here, this is for mature men. That's love. You put away childish things. Because love will never be useless. But there comes a time when you stop playing with toys. There comes a time where cars are not things that you put on a little racetrack. And you push through your house, you have to drive. That's the real thing. And you put away childish things. I want to end with a story of the power of love. I was in Botswana preaching about 10 years ago. The guy who organized the event, his wife never came to any of my meetings. But he would constantly talk about his wife. And I'm like, listen man, it's been a week. You keep talking about your wife, I've never seen your wife. Is she Adventist? What's the situation? Yeah, she's Adventist, but she won't come. I said, why won't she come? He says, well, if you got time, I got time. Tell me the story. So he said, well, before I met my wife, My wife was young. She was growing up in this church. She was dating this other Adventist young man. During their relationship, she eventually became pregnant outside of marriage. As a result, the church disfellowshipped her while she was pregnant, did not disfellowship the guy. The guy married her best friend in the same church, happily married, received by the church. But the woman disfellowshipped. Then as she's this fellowship, she'd be walking to the market, she'll be walking to the store, and church members will see her and will just keep driving. Now, I don't know about you, but Botswana is a hot place. And she's walking with this baby tied to her back. And these church members would literally drive by this woman, walking miles to the market with the baby. So now, one day, she's walking... He told me. And as she was walking, a car pulled over. It was a woman. And the woman said, Excuse me, are you going to the market? She said, Yes, I'm going to the market. She says, Well, why don't you jump in? I'm heading there too. Oh, I don't want to be a burden with the baby. She says, You're not a burden. Please, just jump in. I'm going to the market anyway. So, of course, how can you turn that down? Let's see, 10 mile walk or a drive. I'll get in the car. So she got in the car. She got to the market. The lady said, Hey, Just get whatever you need to get. I'll drop you home. So you don't have to carry all the groceries because you probably don't buy a lot because you have to walk. But we have a car now. So you can buy whatever you need. So this woman, filling up the cart, gets to the register. They scan all the groceries and everything at the market. And then she says, pulls out her wallet to pay. And she's like, oh, uh, I don't know if I can afford all these items. They said, oh, don't worry about it. Some lady already paid for it. She said, what? Yeah, the lady over there paid for your groceries. Have a nice day. So she pushes the cart out. She tells the lady, why did you pay? You should take my... She says, please, don't worry about it. Then she goes, puts all the groceries in. Then she tells her, she says, you know what? Um, Why don't you go ahead and take the car for the week? I'll call my husband. He can pick me up. And after he picks me up, I'll get home. You can keep the car. Just meet me here in two weeks, right here at this store, and then I can get the car back from you. She's like, there's no way I can take your car. She says, you have no choice. My husband's coming to pick me up right now. So she gives her her car for two weeks. Now, obviously, if a person gave you your car, you're not just gonna disappear. You don't wanna burn the hens that feeding you. So she shows up two weeks later at the market with the car, goes back into the store. The lady says, hey, let's do your shopping for two weeks. Get back in the car, whatever, whatever. Same thing happens. Goes to the register. That lady paid for your groceries. She's like, why does this lady keep doing this? She doesn't even know her name. Then she puts her groceries in the car. She tells her, listen, my husband and I have prayed about this. We realize we have two cars. It's not right for you and your baby to be walking. So we're just going to give you this car. My husband and I will share our car. The girl doesn't even know what to say. He told me, he said, so my wife looked at her and he said, ma'am, I cannot take your car. This is not, she says, don't even worry about it. We'll pay the insurance. We'll pay everything. I know what you're worried about, fees and all this stuff. We'll cover it. Just keep the car. And just so you know, we're from the local Pentecostal congregation. And you and your baby are always welcome. He looked at me and he said, So guess what church my wife goes to? The Pentecostal church. Not because she agrees with the doctrines. And I said, tell your wife to come Saturday night. I'm going to preach on 1 Corinthians 13. And when she came, and after I preached, towards the end of the sermon, before I made the appeal, I said, Love is more powerful than truth. People go to church where they're loved. She doesn't agree with the teachings of tongues. She doesn't agree with Sunday. She knows about the Sabbath. And she keeps it. But where she goes to worship, where she is loved. Because we can have all these things as a church. And we love to tell people we have the truth, and we do. But if you don't have love, we can judge the value of our congregation based on how much love. Not our doctrines. Not our attendance. But on the love. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed, as we conclude this service. Is there anyone here this morning, as we pray and as we close this service, that Heavenly Father, we recognize that Paul is trying to argue that love is the greatest spiritual gift. This is the greatest manifestation of the Spirit of God. But Lord, love does not come from us. If it is a spiritual gift, it only comes from heaven. You cannot bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing. It is because of your grace that love can be planted in our souls. So Father, maybe there's someone here this morning that says, I have not been as loving as God has called us to be. I haven't been as loving as God has called us to be. And like Joshua, I want to say, regardless of what the rest of the church may do or not do, as for me in my house, we will seek to be a light. To be a place where people can come in contact with love divine. If that is your desire, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. If you want to make that decision this morning. I have not been as loving as I know God has called us to be. But I want to be a person in this church, regardless of what the rest of the church does. People will know God's love through me. Now, your heads are still bowed. Your eyes are still closed. And I have one more invitation. And that invitation is for someone who says, I have been hurt by the church, by someone in the church. Maybe not this church. Maybe it is this church. Maybe another church. But you have been hurt. And as a result, you struggle to find that kind of love in the church. And through its fellowship. And you want to say this morning, Lord, I'm bringing that to the altar. I'm about to let this thing go. I'm not going to suffer under the weight of how I have been mistreated or neglected or forgotten. And this morning, I want to bring that to the altar and say, Lord, this whole situation is yours. This whole situation is yours. I want to invite you to just meet me right up here up front at this altar. This is a serious invitation. And it's going to take some serious courage. But I've been to enough churches to know that people have been hurt. Come, sister. You don't have to be afraid. Anyone else? Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. We like to look to see who's coming. But we're not thinking about our own lives. This is between you and Jesus. You say, someone in the church has hurt me, and I'm bringing that situation to the altar this morning. In the church. Come, right here in the middle. Because these are the decisions that make all the difference. We cannot love when we have not been loved. But when we feel that we have been neglected, slighted, forgotten, or unloved, we cannot love other people. And that's why we say, forgive us as we forgive. We have to take those situations and bring it to Jesus. Maybe you've been the victim of gossip. Maybe people have tried to criticize you. Whatever it is, we don't need to know the details. This is between you and the master of the universe. This is between you and your father. And you're coming to him to say, I'm done with this. This is yours. I'm not going to fight this thing anymore. I'm not going to argue I'm not going to sit here and retell the story and relive the pain over and over and over in frustration. I'm bringing it to Jesus this morning to say, Lord, I'm letting it go. I'm putting it at your altar. This is not my battle anymore. This is not my struggle. This is Christ. And you can trust that Jesus will heal. And God will never waste your pain. He's promised that. Anyone else says I've been hurt and I'm bringing it to the altar. My last invitation is for anyone who's saying this morning or this afternoon I have not given myself fully to serving the Lord. I've been resisting his call to serve. And this morning, I'm saying, Lord, I surrender. And I want to make myself available for you and for your kingdom. I want you to just raise your right hand to heaven. You said, Lord, I haven't made myself available, but I'm going to make myself available from here on out. I haven't really surrendered myself to your service. God sees your hands. God sees your hands. Father in heaven, you see the hands that are raised coming to you and saying, Lord, we will serve Jesus. We choose to serve him and to recognize that whatever you call us to do in this church is for you. Father, we've also come forward to this altar to lay down our burdens and to follow what the hymn writer has written, to come ye disconsolate wherever you languish. To come to the mercy seat and fervently kneel here bring your wounded heart here tell your anguish for earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal lord you see each soul that is standing at this altar pray that they would find that there is a balm in gilead yeah. to heal the sin-sick soul father we pray that as we have stood to respond to say, we have not manifested your love as we ought. And so we pray that, Lord, you would teach us how to love as we ought. Give us that flame that burned in the heart of Jesus, his love for God and his love for men. And, Lord, may this church be known in this community as a place where you are loved, where you are accepted, where you are encouraged where you can be used for a greater purpose even beyond this world. Teach us how to do that and guide us as we go forward is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons,